Well, it was one of the last days of my college career, and a bunch of my friends and I, we went out for the night. A lot was going on. Some were engaged, some were breaking up, some were graduating, some were staying, there was a whole lot of things happening. We ended up at, back at one of my friend's apartments, and it was the place that we would have like these really epic life extension conversations we talked about what movie was the greatest movie of all time. We would talk about love. We would talk about what do you want to do with the rest of your life. And on this particular night, I couldn't help but feel grateful for these friendships that I had found and, and built over the years. Uh, these were the guys that I had confided in. These were the guys that had trusted me. We had argued. We celebrated. We debated. Uh, we kind of just went through the journey of college together. And at this stage of my life, this is probably the best sense of Christian community or of Christian brotherhood that, that I had experienced. It was also one of those times when it just felt like everything was kind of going right. It was one of those times when you're like, you know, I thought it was going to be just like this. In life when so many things are ruined and when even the sweet moments turn sour, it was really nice to have this night. I felt a sense of loyalty. I felt like this, these were people that I could believe when they said, if you need anything, let me know. I'll be there for you. Loyalty. Oh, that's a noble word. It's a word that doesn't really have a rival on the other side proclaiming that loyalty is bad. Everybody knows loyalty is good. It's a desirable quality and it's something that we look for in others. And when we find the absence of loyalty, when we find betrayal or denial or abandonment, we, we avenge, or we cut ties, or when the conditions are right, maybe then we forgive. And so there's this loyalty test that we administer. The loyalty test is basically a way of assessing the quality of a friendship. In essence, the loyalty test is relationship performance. Now, the people who pass our loyalty test, like in our middle school years, they're the people that we discover that do not gossip behind our backs and save us a seat at lunch. As we get older, it's pretty similar, maybe just a little bit more sophisticated. Our text messages reveal those who we feel most loyal to. Those who we feel most loyal to, they are recorded in, in, in pictures. They, they take on the forms of like groomsmen and bridesmaids, and, and they take up special places in, in th throughout our home and throughout our lives. They are the favorites on our, on our, on our phone lists. Those are the people we invite over when we have, we're having a great day or when we're having a bad day. They're the people that we depend on. Whether we realize it or not, we all administer some form of a loyalty test. And then there are those who fail our loyalty tests. Well, we have a special place for them as well. They are regulated in some way. We stop telling them certain things. We're slower in calling them back. We may even purposely lose touch with them and unfriend them completely in real life or online. Now that's a real brutal summary, but, and there, there is a lot of nuance to it. But I ask you, who are the people who have passed your loyalty test? And who are the people who have failed your loyalty tests? Where are they now? Now the loyalty test is not wrong. It's not evil. It has a place actually. But when loyalty becomes the, the deciding factor in measuring the quality of our relationships, well, we end up missing something far better. So we started a new series called At the Table, and this is week two of it. 
And we are taking a look, of, look at Jesus' words in the farewell discourse in the book of John. Now, a lot of people say that John is their favorite gospel to read, and, and it's probably true. But it's probably also the hardest to study. Mark, Matthew, and Luke, you know, they're written as like shareable summaries in the life and the work of Jesus. They're answering the question, what did Jesus' ministry look like? And they say, well, let me tell you. We're not exactly sure what question John is answering, okay? He just, he's just pretty much just trying to do something different. Mark, Matthew, and Luke, they're normal guys. Teacher, accountant, doctor. John, he's an artist. You ever have a friend who's an artist? Mark's the guy that you want up front teaching. John's the guy that you want to have dinner with and hear all the stories. Mark's the guy that you call to, pick up, to ask you to pick it. Mark's the guy that you want to pick you up at the airport. John doesn't know where the airport is. <laughs> Come to think of it, he doesn't even have a car. You're always driving John around. I mean, he's an artist. You know, he's weaving different themes of light and darkness and seven signs and, and seven messianic statements and all these other beautiful features. Today, I have no doubt that John would have been a brilliant filmmaker. John condenses the, the, the first three years of, uh, of Jesus' ministry in the first 12 chapters of, of the book. Then he spends the remaining nine on the very last week of Jesus' life. And then here in, chap in, in chapters 13 to 17, these five chapters, it's about one night this farewell discourse. It's almost like you can hear John saying, read the other guys if you want the full overview, but I'm going to tell you about this amazing last night we had together. And so we begin with John chapter 13, verse 1. And it reads, it was just before the Passover festival, and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and he was returning to God. It's Passover week and this is an amazing week in the life of Israel. Passover is a celebration of God delivering the children of Israel out of Egypt it's about a God of deliverance, a God who answers prayer, a God of salvation. And then Jesus entered Jerusalem with like this full-on parade, like this inauguration. And such a moment is reserved for kings, like high-ranking politicians, like gold-winning gold Olympic athletes, like extremely important and special people in, in society. So when Jesus gets this treatment, like this is a huge statement. It's so huge, you just, I mean, you just got to picture Jesus kind of just like riding in on a duck boat across Boylston Street, you know, and they're waving their palm branches, which is like the sign of victory, and instead of like throwing out like a red carpet, they, they take off their cloaks and they throw it on the ground just in case Jesus decides to walk, his feet won't get dirty. I mean, this is the peak of Jesus' popularity. There's a lot of excitement, there's that feeling of revolution in the air, and the establishment, the Pharisees and the high priests, they're stressed because of this treatment. They're, they're, they're hearing the, the, the word of the crowd and, and like the, the Jewish population. They're like, like, I love this Jesus guy. This is, what we've been, this is what we've been wanting. And even like the local Roman government, they're getting a little stressed too. And they're actually making sure that they have enough riot gear on hand in case things get ugly. Verse 2, it talks about the Passover meal being, being, being given. 
Now, it's a week-long festival, and, and it's a week of feasting, and, and maybe this particular night was on Thursday. In the other Gospels, they describe Jesus' words at this meal. You know, when he takes the bread and he breaks it, when he takes the wine and he pours it. And these are the very same words that we use at communion to this day. We like to imagine the, the, the 12 disciples and kind of wonder what, what, what they were like. They, they, were, they probably shared a lot of the similar small group dynamics that, that we would be familiar with. You know, you know what it's like when you're traveling and working and being with, with people for a really long time and just, just a, such a small quarters? I bet you they had some fun together. I bet you, like, you know, I can hear one disciple saying, I just, I just love it when he gives that Jesus imitation of his. Verily, verily, I say unto you. Oh, I love it when he does that. I bet you there was some frustration. Man, there he goes, opening up his mouth again. When is this guy going to stop? There's probably loneliness. There are 12 of us, and no one ever talks about the other Simon. I'm the one who didn't say dumb stuff. <laughs> and I bet despite all that frustration and maybe some of that jealousy, there was probably an enormous sense of loyalty too. It's probably similar to the relationship that all brothers have, where they say to each other, no one hurts you but me. <laughs> and so, like brothers, they fought. In fact, in the other Gospels, it's recorded that they were arguing over who was the greatest on this night. And I imagine statements that were being made, well, well, technically that means that I should be sitting over here and you over there. Or, who are you kidding? Frankly, I'm offended that you didn't offer to wash our feet when we came in. What, what's wrong with you? And so maybe that's why, in verse 4, it, it reads... So Jesus got up from the meal, and he took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just by your feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. Now throughout the Gospels, there's a lot of times I'm just kind of like face palming after Peter has said something. But in this case, like I actually think this is normal. Like if Jesus, like this incredible a miracle worker, healer, demon exerciser, incredible rabbi teacher says to me, I'm going to wash your feet. I would have the same response as, as Peter as well. No, you, you, you don't have to do that. Peter's actually thinking this is a loyalty test. No, Jesus, you know, don't, don't, don't do that. In fact, if you want people to have their feet washed, I'll, I'll do it for you. But you don't have to wash my feet. I'm not going to love you or serve you or care for you anymore. I can't possibly love you anymore. Please, Jesus, it's okay. Don't, we don't have to have this awkward moment. I love you, Jesus, right? Peter thinks this is a loyalty test. But instead, Jesus takes it up a notch. He says, unless I wash your feet, you can have no part with me. Stunned, Peter relents. And this is like a, 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 a moment that I really want us to feel. And I've been trying to figure out, like, what would make us feel the awkwardness of this moment? And so here's the best I can come up with. Imagine your, your favorite author or, or thinker or, or someone of, 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 this, uh, of this caliber comes to Boston. 
and you go to hear him lecture. You go up to him after the, uh, af- after the, the message um, and, and you have a quick moment with him and, and you're like, hey, I just want you to know your, your books have really inspired me. I, I am just a big fan of yours and, and thank you for your work. And casually, this person responds with, oh, what is it that you like about my work? And for the first time in your life, you give this incredibly coherent answer at the right time. <laughs> and it just rolls off your tongue. And the, and the distinguished you know, you know, speaker is like, Thanks. You know, I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't know that people actually understood that. That's what I'm trying to say. And you guys have this moment. And you guys kind of continue the conversation. And then this, the, 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 this brilliant thinker says, you know, I'm, I'm going to be in Boston for a few days. And I'm kind of tired of being in my hotel and eating at these restaurants. Could I impose upon you and have dinner at your house this weekend? Oh, that would be great. We, I would love to have you. I'm free Saturday, as it just so happens to be. You run home, and you like, tell your family. You, 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 you invite some of your friends over. And you're like, this incredible figure is, is coming over to our house. I, we just kind of need, like, need to have our act together. You like email summaries of this person's work to your friends. You know, they, they, so they can you know, contribute positively to the conversation type of a thing, right? Your, your kids are, are dressed up perfectly. The night is just like, you know, shaping to be great. The house is just immaculate. The guest shows up on time. The traffic cooperated and everything. They open the door. They come on in. And it's like this moment of like, oh, my goodness, I have that picture in my living room too. Oh, my goodness. Oh, like well, the things are just the synergy. It's just amazing. The meal is just great. It just looks great. Everybody's smiling. Everybody's exchanging compliments. And just before the blessing... The distinguished guest says, I'd like to clean your toilet now. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know what that means. Um, is, it, is it maybe where he's from that means he just needs to, it, it's right over there. They, they, no, 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 I need, I, need the, I need the scrubber, I need your Clorox. Um, I didn't bring any of that with me. I need, and, and if you have some gloves, that would be great. Um, but like, I, I need to clean your toilet. And like you're kind of looking around the table, and of course you feel the tension from your family and your friends, and they're all wondering, why can't you be a fan of Malcolm Gladwell like everybody else? Why do you have to pick this guy? You point them to the guest, the guest bathroom, and, and the guest says, like, no, 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 no. The germs are in there are like, you know, 20 minutes old. You just clean that place. I need to clean your toilet. You probably have an ensuite. I, I need to get in there. And you're thinking to yourself, there's not a chance this person is going to go and and do that. They would lose all respect for me. I need to clean your toilet. Now, your your powers of persuasion, your charm, your wit, your stubbornness, they have just fallen apart. And all of a sudden, you find yourself saying, okay, it's right upstairs. And please clean my sink and shower, too. (laughs) Now, if... If, if you are just cringing at the word toilet every time I say it, know two things. One, I hate saying it, and I've been searching for a better illustration all week. But two, that's exactly the cr- type of cringe-worthy response John wants from us as we read this foot-washing moment. When, when, when Jesus gets up from the table, and, he's, and, and, and this is part of the beauty, that, that the way that John writes... He says he gets up from the table and he takes off his outer, la- his, outer, his outer robe and he lays it down. And this removal, this laying down is the same word that he uses in John 15 
when he says, greater love has none than this, than when he laid down, when he removes his life for his friends. So Jesus is like, is, is really leaning into this and he grabs the basin and he pours the water and he gets down on the ground where it, it, it's dirty and filthy and probably smells awful. And he begins to wash his disciples' feet. Now in the Jewish world, in the Greco-Roman world, this was an act of hospitality. And for big celebrations, like you would actually have a foot-washing servant on hand to do this. But there is no foot-washing servant on this particular night. Who knows, maybe Jesus sent him home because he knew he wanted to do this. But in this moment, Jesus is combining two roles. He's combining the host role and he's combining the servant role. And so he gets down low and, and he's, he's about to wash Peter's feet. And Peter says, no, 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 I, 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 don't, I don't want to do this. And, and when he relents, he says, okay, fine, then, then wash my head and my hands as well. And what does that mean? And Jesus says, like, well, you've already had a bath. You only, really ha- you only need to wash your feet, which is probably literally true. Before the festival, all the Jewish men and women, they, 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 would, they, would, they would bathe before arriving to a feast like this. So, so it's probably true. He probably just did have a bath and probably just had dirty feet from walking over. But it also means something else. And what Jesus wants Peter to see, and all of us to see, that it's not just about the water that is doing the cleansing. It's actually not about the water at all. It's about the person doing the cleansing. I'm doing something that you can't really do for yourself. In the, in the act of the work of the cross and the resurrection, I'm going to be doing something that no other servant, no other person on the planet can do but me. And in this act of foot washing, and in the receiving of the act, we are receiving hospitality from Jesus. We are receiving friendship from Jesus. We are receiving salvation from Jesus. And like this, is, is this incredible symbolic moment that is going on in foot washing, which shows unity, which shows humility, which shows love, and shows service. It's an incredible moment. He gets up from the table. And as it says in verse 12, or he gets up from the floor, excuse me. And he says, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. And I have set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. What a great moment this must have been. I imagine the other disciples just, just moved. I imagine tears running down people's faces. I imagine words of encouragement being offered by Jesus and perhaps by other disciples as this was happening. I imagine some of the other disciples reconciling with each other. I'm sorry, I did not mean to imply that I was better than you. In fact, you actually are the more nobler disciple. I'm actually jealous of you. Forgive me, brother. I imagine those types of things happening. I imagine it's just this this moment that you wish could happen more often. It was a beautiful moment. But just then, Jesus says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those who I've chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I tell you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. 
Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit, and he testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Now, this is the record scratch. This, this, this turns this beautiful moment into, like, all-out alarm. This pretty much just ruins everything. Everybody's like, what? I mean, everybody's eyes get, get big. And, and I'm telling you, like, there was, like, an enormous sense of loyalty in the room. That's why when he says, one of you is going to betray me, they're not pointing the fingers at each other. They're like, oh, it's probably that guy. I knew it. They're like, no, it can't be. They are so shocked, and they can't imagine that it be one of the other disciples, that one of the other gospels in Matthew they actually started asking Jesus if it's them. It's not me, is it? Jesus, it's not. It's, it, couldn't, it can't possibly be them. It's, that just leaves me. It's, it's not me, is it? And one of the disciples says to another, ask him who it is. And Jesus answers in 26, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus had said this to him. Since Judas had charged the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. Oh, and that, that line, and it was night. Again, that's part of like the artistry of John. He's been weaving in these light and darkness themes the whole time. And he's saying, now is when it gets ugly. Now it's when the, the foreshadowing of the cross enters in the picture. Now Jesus is fulfilling the words of David in Psalm 41.9. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who I shared my bread with has turned against me. But the disciples aren't interested in that and, and they, they can hardly even grasp what he's talking about. And you might wonder, like, how does he not understand? He said, it's the, the person that I'm going to give this bread to. How, how do you not get what's happening here? Well, this moment of receiving bread is actually a, a pretty beautiful moment. I used to think that like, Jesus was just grabbing one of the extra bread rolls on the, on, the, on, on the table and just like you know throwing it at Judas. It's that guy over there. But no, actually. This is actually a, a really honorable moment when the host would, would grab a piece of the bread, probably from the center pot that had the meat, and it was in the, 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 probably had, the bread was probably laying on top of the pot, so it was like a dipping type of a, uh, a dish. And they would dip the meat and would take the bread and they would give it to a guest of honor. And Judas was probably sitting very close to Jesus. And so when the other disciples saw this, they thought maybe Jesus is doing what he normally does, not answering the question the way that he, you know, directly. And he just gave Judas like this incredible gift of a moment. And Judas, I wonder what was going on in his mind. I mean, there, there he is. You, you just have to wonder when Jesus is washing his feet, what is he thinking about? I mean, is, is, is he overcome by guilt? We usually assume that he's just overcome by guilt. Or is he just too spiritually numb to actually feel what is going on? There's a, a few theories of, of why Judas did what he did. Some say that Judas was actually kind of a noble guy, and, and he believed in the power and the strength of Jesus, and, and he was bringing the fight to Jesus. He knew that if he brought the Roman soldiers to Jesus, that Jesus would just like decimate them. Because what Judas really wanted and what most people in that day really wanted was for Jesus to overthrow the Roman government and take Jerusalem back. 
and to get rid of the, the priests and like just kind of create this new, this new system of, of belief through Jesus. Some just speculate that Judas was convinced that Jesus was just going to be another failed Messiah. And he had given up on Jesus. And so like, hey, if these high priests wanted Jesus, I know where you can find him. I'm, I'm done wasting these last three years. I'm going to go and find the real Messiah. So maybe that's why Judas sold Jesus out. Of course, we resent Judas because of our, our, part, of, part of it is due to our loyalty and our love to Jesus. So we have to kind of, you know, resent Judas. But I resent Judas for another reason, too. I resent Judas because for a long time, I thought he had something that I really wanted. I mean, here he has this moment with Jesus, a personal moment with Jesus. He could touch Jesus. He could hear Jesus' voice, something that I, too, have desperately wanted. I mean, how many times have I thought, and maybe you too, have thought and prayed, Jesus, if I could just touch you or feel you or hear your voice, then I would really, really believe. Then I would be able to cast away some of this, these doubts that I've been plagued with. Jesus, if, if I could just really know you in an actual sense, oh man. Because why? This is my loyalty test. I would love to have had this moment that Judas has. And I resent Judas for squandering it for a long time. I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged by, by, by what's going to be recorded later in the book of John, in John 20, when Jesus says, Blessed are they that believe even though they have not seen. Oh, that's beautiful. But I wonder what was going on in Judas' mind. I wonder what he felt when he got up from the table, when he had that piece of bread, when he had a full stomach, and maybe when he had clean feet. What was he thinking? I wonder about that. And then in the text, it describes Jesus as being troubled. N.T. Wright has this really great line that says, there's no shame in spirit trouble. It's what you get when you're a foot washer, when you're a generous love person, open to deep friendship and to serious wounds that only friends can give. I imagine Jesus kind of offering a prayer, God, help me, because I'm feeling the tension here. To continue on in verse 31, when Judas had gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. Skip down to verse 34. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And here Simon Peter says, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I'm going you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Peter, and again with the loyalty test. No, Jesus, I'm going to be right there with you. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine what it, what it is to be Judas. But, but most of us respond in a, in a way similar to Peter. Like, I would have been there too. I, that's exactly what I would have been saying. Uh, Jesus, we're, if we're going to go down, we're going to go down together type of a thing. Well, it's going to get real in just a few hours. A few dozen Roman soldiers with torches and spears and swords and helmets and chest plates and with a menacing look of violence on their faces, they are coming. And I imagine it's very difficult to be brave in such a moment. I imagine that's a loyalty test that very few of us would be able to pass, especially when it's not you 
that they're really coming for. I find myself humbled in these moments. What would I have done? Today I find myself thinking of the 21 Coptic Christians who were brutally killed by ISIS. I mean, I'm angered by the evil, but I'm also moved by their martyrdom. It's recorded that their last moments of life were were filled with professions of Christian faith, boldly proclaiming their love for Christ. I'm moved by that. I'm forced to ask myself, what is it that I'm really loyal to? Is it to myself? Is it really to others and to the Lord? Who or what is it that I really love? It's often that our true loyalty is revealed by who and what we love. Another realization that that, that, that comes from this is, is knowing that we are going to fail each other's loyalty tests. And you're going to fail my loyalty test, and I'm going to fail yours. We are going to fail each other, which forces us then to ask, can we respond with the mercy and understanding of Jesus? Earlier, Jesus tells his disciples that you need to, now, now you need to do for each other what I have done for you. And so we, we come this morning and we ask ourselves, what does it look like to wash each other's feet? At the table, we learn that we do not serve each other merely out of loyalty, but out of love. If it's not about loyalty, and it is more about love, and it's about service, what does that look like? Because our foot-washing moments don't really feel or look the same in today's 21st century Western society where we all wear very clean socks and have daily baths, and feet aren't really that weird to us, at least not in the first century sense. Having experienced a foot washing service uh, a few times over the years, I, w- I, was, I was tempted to, to, to actually illustrate it for you. But one of the best parts of a, of a foot washing service is the intimacy that you experience with the person's feet that you're washing or, 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 or when your feet are being washed. And it actually feels impossible to actually replicate that in, in such a setting like this. So I hand the responsibility over to you. What does foot washing look like in your life? How can you experience the beauty and the intimacy and the power of foot washing? It could take on a number of appearances. Now, we are, we're all different people. We all have different callings. There's different needs and lives around us. Maybe it's, it's some easier things like airport runs or, or meals or picking up the phone and listening to somebody. Maybe it's some challenging circumstances like, like caring for your aging parents or your elderly in-laws. Maybe it's like shoveling all the snow that we have for a neighbor. Uh, my, my friend Bassam went over to uh, the host of our life community. Um, they, they had like seven, seven feet of snow on their deck that had just kind of, um, you know, had just kind of blown over. And, and like, you know, if, if you stand there for like, you know, two hours shoveling someone else's deck, that's true friendship right there, right? Like, I mean, like that is like washing the feet of another right there. It's not just about doing chores and performing tasks, though, for each other. The best service that we can find is usually in community. It's usually found in the context of relationship. So when Jesus washes his disciples' feet, again, he is uniting them to him, which forces us to ask another question. Who are we united to? I go back to my, 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 that, that scene right before college graduation and these great college friends that, that I had enjoyed these years with. And for a long time, I was, I was trying to recreate a version of this. 
I really believe that if my wife and I could just find enough people in similar stages of life with similar interests um, and who loved Jesus and loved others, that I would be able to experience true community. But that's only a half-true. It's one of the reasons why finding a life community or any sense of community is so hard. I mean, I also had trouble finding a life community group, and I work in the ministry responsible for life community groups. <laughs> I mean, being in one is, is not easy. I mean, like, like, there's all these logistics things that, that kind of have to, like, fall into place. And then joining one that already has a life of its own is not that easy either. I mean, before we showed up, I started feeling bad for my life community group when they heard that, like, one of the pastors was, was going to come to their life community group. I can only imagine them saying to each other, oh, great. Now we can't really say what we really want to say anymore. And then my insecurities were, you know, were revealed a little bit too, because most of the guys in my life community group are, are engineers and, and software developers. And you know, sometimes I would sit on a couch and, and they would be talking about XTML and algorithms, things I know nothing about. I, I, I felt like, you know, if you ever saw the movie Goodwill Hunting, I felt like I was joining like a group of like a bunch of Matt Damons, and I was like the Ben Affleck character, Chucky. Anybody watch the game yesterday? No, we're talking about algorithms. May God multiply the algorithms. No, do not multiply the algorithms. That's an exponential disaster. We go, okay, okay, don't multiply the algorithms, whatever you do. <laughs> Through the years, I have come to, to have a, more of an appreciation for algorithms as I now understand what they actually do in life. And I really love the guys you know, who, who, who get that. I really love our life community group. And this, this past year was, was a time that we got to experience some serving with each other. We, we had just celebrated the, uh, the arrival of our fourth child, our second daughter. Uh, we named her Brianna Joy. She was born in November 5. And after my in-laws and my parents left, um, there was a bit of a void in, in our house. And it was my life community group and, and friends for, uh, you know, all, all throughout the church from Family Connection and, and, and other places too that, would, that were coming and bringing food that were coming and taking care of our kids, that were babysitting for us. And th these were people who were literally washing our feet. Now, this wasn't just a, a loyalty test. It wasn't just like a, a tr you know, some type of favor exchange. There was bonding that was happening in these moments and in many moments before. And when you feel like the person who's usually doing the foot washing, it's humbling and it's beautiful to have your feet washed every so often as well. Friends, it takes a while to invest in community. And you often don't find it in the people who are just like you. In fact, you usually find the, the most beautiful pictures of community in, in, in people who are very different from you. But you're grateful that you get to experience it. This is why we're leaning in really hard for these, these five weeks of being in community together. We know getting together for five weeks with, with, with each other is going to be challenging and life is full of interruptions and we're, we're, we're excited about the video series that, that we've kind of created and the, and the discussion questions. But what we're really excited about is the beauty of finding community on the other side of sacrifice. And we invite you to, 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 to consider that. Life is not just about loyalty tests and dirty feet. It's not about finding people just like you. Instead, it's that long, awkward, beautiful journey that we find friendship in. It's here where we, where we walk this road following Jesus together that we find what life can truly be about, even in the difficult moments, even in the most gritty and the most filthy moments. And these, these are the moments where they become beautiful and grace-filled. And so, friends, it's here at the table 
that we see each other's dirty feet. It's here at the table that we experience what it means to wash each other's dirty feet. And it's here at the table that we learn that we do not serve each other merely out of loyalty, but instead out of love. Will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we come to you grateful for the richness of your scriptures. Father, we are grateful of of this incredible scene that we get to draw so much truth from, of you washing your disciples' feet, and what that means to us too. And so, Father, we also, we receive your hospitality. We receive your friendship. We receive your salvation, Lord. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for considering us worthy of you. We pray, Lord, that you continue to speak to us. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.